LeBron, maybe the most physically gifted, you know, human we've seen on a basketball court. But this guy is calling out coverages like he's watched more film than you and I have in our lifetime. And to sit in a gym with nobody in there and listen to the soundtrack of LeBron calling defensive coverages and stuff. And this is what I'll teach our players is that talent gets you some places and understanding the game will get you some places. But when you put that together, that's when you get the lead. Welcome to Slapping Glass, where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome the head coach of USC women's basketball, Lindsey Gottlieb. Coach Gottlieb is here today to discuss patience versus tactical pivots during rough starts, reverse engineering defensive schemes, and we talk playing versus sitting players with two fouls, ghost screens, and hiring staff during the always fun start, sub, or sit. Thank you to the coaches and staffs from over 15 different countries who've joined SG Plus this summer. Your support helps us continue to provide the highest quality content we can. Listeners of the podcast can receive 10% off a membership by entering SG10 at sign up. Interested staffs can also email us at info at slappingglass.com for more information on our staff rate. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach Lindsey Gottlieb. Coach, let's dive right in. And one of the things we're really interested to pick your brain about is what we're calling the you know the the first quarter blues or the first half blues where you know you've got a great game plan you got a good warm up in but then for whatever reason you come out of the gate and the the team isn't playing well so I want to start with your decision making process or your thoughts from the bench when your team isn't playing up to the standard that you think they should be early on so when you make changes when you make substitutions when you call timeout all the things that go into trying to get them playing better well one of the things i love just so much about the whole process of coaching and actually i think being a head coach a lot falls on the head coach which is it's a cool responsibility is that there's this entire process of preparation and you need to have your team prepared to play and that's mentally physically you know game plan wise emotionally but that's not in a vacuum by itself you also need to be able to manage like those 40 minutes or in the NBA, those 48 minutes, right? So it's such a cool kind of inexact science, but I would say the emotional buildup to a game is really hyped up and and you know what you kind of want to do and and the game tips off and it doesn't go well right away. I think in real time, coaches have to process what's going on here. Is it a random, right? We got good shots and missed them. The other team, you know, got some maybe shots you're willing to give up and they make them. Maybe it's eight to two, but it's really not that big of a deal and ride it out. I mean, that's one thing. Then there's another thing where it's like you feel your team maybe emotionally didn't come out like the other team was tougher or, you know, your team wasn't quite ready getting beat on the boards, getting beat back in transition defense. That's a whole nother thing. And if that's the case, I think you need a really, really early timeout. If it's an emotional thing and it's like, hey, we just don't feel right. I would call a timeout really quickly and just try and change the mojo, whether it's hey, we're all right, you know, like let's not panic or whether it's getting in them a little bit, like we got to change this on our own. And then the third, I think thing would be is if you came in with a game plan and oh my goodness, this game plan doesn't look like it's going to work. We want to give up X. We don't think this kid can hit shots 
or we're trying to get the ball out of this person's hands and yet the other people are beating them. Now you have to make a decision of, is this game plan, you know, wrong and you have to pivot? Is there a plan B or is it a regression to the mean type of situation where maybe it feels like it's wrong, but over the course of time, it's going to work. So all those things are happening in real time. So I would say early timeout, if I feel like it's emotional, early timeout, if I feel like there's a game plan thing, even if we tell our players, hey, I know it feels like it's not working, but stick with it or we're switching it. And if it feels like an anomaly type of deal where then maybe just let your players figure it out. That would be my general thought process behind it. Coach, with the game plan aspect, what are some of the things you're looking for that will determine whether like, yeah, we got to change course or no, let's write it out. Like you said, it's going to regress to the mean and fall in our favor. Sometimes you have to find out in real time that the things you're asking your players to do, maybe they're not capable of doing it against that competition, right? Like you prep, you hope they can, but let's say you're trying to trap someone off of a ball screen and all of a sudden Terry McDonald or it's Damian Lillard and like, oh, we can't keep them in the trap. Maybe you got to kind of abort the mission and say, that's a great game plan if you can do it, but we're not having success doing it. And that's not going to change versus a slight adjustment. Hey, they're hitting the shake on this. Let's just get there quicker, get a hand up. We want to get it out of his, you know, his or her hands. Now they're making the pass. Now let's guard the third person, you know, involved it. So it's a matter of, is it a game plan thing that's going awry or is it a game plan thing that you just need to get your players to do it a little bit better? That's, yeah. that's how my mind would work in terms of assessing. And with that, as coaches, do you need to be maybe cognizant of how you communicate that to your players? Yeah. I mean, I think as a coach, you always have to be cognizant of the way you're communicating something players really feed off of it. So, you know, I, I like to be very intentional with my messaging. So it's never going to come from a place of, panic myself or even anger, right? It's just like, hey, I want to be so in lockstep with the team on what we're trying to accomplish that if it's not going well, I can say, hey, it's not going well, but we're good. Or it's not going well, we need to close out harder or we need to get on the boards or make a correction. But I think it starts from a place of being in lockstep with your team and then having the ability to communicate whatever it is that you want to communicate. It doesn't mean, you know, you're always passive in your voice or you're always lovey-dovey by any means, but it's coming from a place of intentionality of what message am I trying to get across and how do I need to deliver that message? Coach, a real technical one here. You know, if you're going to call an early timeout for an emotional reason, is that a 30 or full? You know, do you feel like you need to just do a quick one and get it back out there or are you sitting them down and, and talking to them? Yeah, no, it's a 30. Okay. If it's an emotional thing, like, you know, like, what are we doing? Sometimes I just need that second wind almost like that breath of, you know, maybe they punched in the mouth a little bit and, hey, we got to punch back or we didn't feel like we were ready or the speed got us or something. You know, I, I think a 30 just to level it out and, yeah. and get going, stop the bleeding, so to speak. A similar question that I had earlier, how do you deliver that message? Because Every player is kind of different in how they get motivated or some I'm sure you can yell at, but some of you yell at, they're not going to respond. What are you thinking about in this 30? Again, I always think it comes back to what is the relationship you have with your team? It allows you some rope there to get to them how you feel like you need to get to them. I laugh because, you know, I spent the last two years not being a head coach and doing a lot of observing. And so, for example, JB Bickerstaff with the Cavs just has such a good emotional intelligence, like such a good feel for the guys because he is who he is all the time. Right. So, I mean, I would joke with him if he's sitting right here, there was, you know, a couple of times where he would call it the emotional timeout. And it was like, the guys are walking back, <laughs> look at him, you know, and just say, what are we doing? What the F are we doing with, you know, the, and, and like, that's all he needs to say. Right. It, it, because 
they don't look at them crazy because they, they know them and they trust them and they know it's just like a, we have to be better, right? So I think if you're, you know, kind of a ranting, raving lunatic all the time, then that's not going to hold any weight. But I think if you have that relationship with your players where eight out of 10 timeouts are technical and, hey, we're doing a great job with this, we need to do better with this, the one that you call and you don't even take the board into the huddle, they know it's, this isn't technical. This is, you know, like talk on defense or don't let people out tough you or whatever the emotional thing is. I, I think there's a really that differentiation. And if you have the, the pulse of your team, then you can go the direction that you need to go when you need to go there. Coach, a, sec- a little bit ago, you talked about, you know, when you might pivot maybe tactically in the yep. first half of first quarter and things are going well. How much of the decisions of what you might pivot to are like contingency plans that you've prepared for with your staff so that you know if this player starts hitting shots or if this isn't working, we're going to go to this. How much of that happens beforehand? A lot of it happens in the formulation of the game plan. My my good friend, Mike Neighbors, who coaches at Arkansas women's basketball, he used to be in the Pac-12 at Washington and he and I have talked a lot. He's a numbers guy. He's a lists guy. He would tell me when I was at Cal, we had teams that were very dominant in the paint didn't necessarily, you know, shoot the three as well. So he said, we, he called it his 50 defense, 50 toes in the paint, right? So 10 people uh-huh. with two feet in the paint. And he said, I had a number in my head, like we are not coming out of the paint until you hit whatever it is, eight threes, 10 threes, 12 threes. And so that's the way his mind works. Like if you hit five, oh, well, still seven away from when we're coming out kind of thing. So that's like the most literal, I think, example I can give all of us, I, I think, have a sense of what type of shots we want to give up, how we want to play, what we think it's going to look like. And if it's not playing out that way, you have to be ready to pivot. And I think all of us have a secondary option, right? Uh, Usually it's one that we've practiced. So, Hey, we're, you know, we're hedging the ball screens. We're going to be super aggressive. We're going to rotate. And if that's not working, you know, maybe you go to something else where you're a little bit more conservative at some point. And probably you've worked on that at times. Very rarely in a game have I sort of just like completely thrown everything out and we're going to sit in the zone right? Nothing else is working, but there are times where that feels appropriate because, you know, you feel like it's just a night where things, you know, went awry from what you thought and you have to have flexibility, but without being rash, right. Or not committed to what you're doing. I think coaches have to know, is it a matter of this is still the right game plan and we have to do it better? Or is there something, you know, either the other team was better than you thought at something or your own team is not getting to their spots and do you pivot? I think that's the beauty of coaching, right? Like, figuring out which buttons to push and when to make those adjustments. That's why in-game coaching really does matter. Coach, on that thread and maybe taking it out of the course of this early quarter blues, but what is kind of your process when you feel that decision needs to be made or maybe a pivot? Is it you feel it in your gut you're going to do it or is it I want to see a couple more possessions or are you going to talk to your staff? Like how quickly then does the action follow maybe the thought? Again, I think it's this interesting kind of blend between preparation, analytics, and feel. And I think any coach who's not using any type of data analytics is probably missing out. And any coach who's using all data and analytics and no feel is probably missing out. I think it's a balance between both. I've got all the numbers and the percentages and that kind of stuff in my head. But then you have to have an ability to say, you know, there are anomalies and there are things that happen in games. And, and like I said, there are times at which team hits a couple threes early when you know the data shows that they're you know lower percentage from threes above the break. And you're like, okay, regression to the mean. But maybe it's a night where someone's feeling it and, and you cannot calculate that. 
you know, in the sample size that you've looked and you've got to go on feel. And again, I think that's the fun part of figuring out, you know, but yes, those decisions happen quickly, but not reactionary. And with the analytics you're talking about, I mean, so are you looking for like real-time analytics? I mean, do you want your staff updating you on something or is it more at the end of the quarter you want to see stats as far as then what's going to influence some of your decisions? data and analytics is really the larger sample size that comes like before the game. The interesting thing of now coming back to college from the NBA and you have the resources, riches of the NBA where you get real-time analytics in the game, like, right. Like our analytics guy sitting on the bench and hands me an iPad and I could see shot quality and, you know, effective field goal percentage and all that. I don't think that as a head coach, I'm going to be looking at that in game. I absolutely look at stats, you know, by the quarter or what have you, but it's this idea of like knowing the advanced analytics or the larger sample size and then kind of having a feel of what you're willing to give up. Yeah, You don't hold teams to zero points, right? Like that doesn't happen. So your baskets are going to be scored, but what are you willing to give up? But how is it going relative to how you thought it was going to go? But the analytics stuff, I think happens in the preparation. And then the use of that is what makes coaching, I think, elite, right? When you're able to blend that with just your real-time interpersonal decisions. Coaching, you've mentioned it a couple of times here about uh, the types of shots you're, you know, maybe willing to give up, and we kind of want to transition into that a little bit more and get kind of tactical about that. And I know you've spoken on it before about sort of reverse engineering your defense, and so starting from the principle of these are the types of shots or these are the types of three point attempts I'm willing to give up, and then building your defense out from there. So I'd like to kick it to you on that and your thoughts on how you go about doing that. I think it's a larger kind of process that almost is sort of philosophical when you begin like practice, right? So you have to figure out sort of what you believe in, in terms of basketball, right? Like, do we want to be a team that presses and creates turnovers and maybe we'll give up higher percentage looks when we don't get the turnover, right? but we think we're good enough at it to cause disruption and keep people out of their rhythm. Right. Or maybe you believe in general that, you know, teams won't hit enough mid range shots over the course of a game on enough games to beat us. So we're going to give up mid range and we're going to protect the rim and protect the three point line. I mean, there's all type of stuff. So I think you have to have an understanding of offense and how, you know, what type of shots create, what type of percentages and all that, and then go and look at from a defensive standpoint and say, okay, what are my philosophies on that? But then you also have to know your team and build in your team the defensive packages that you believe the team can do. So, for example, one of the projects I did during the quarantine pandemic, you know, with the Cavs was looking at pick and roll defense across the entire league. And what I found in the NBA, the teams that were the top 10 in pick and roll defense, there was no correlation to how they defended pick and roll. So, for example, your Utah type team, you know, with Gobert and a deep drop right? They're going to give up mid-range, but nothing at the rim was effective. A team like Chicago for the coaching change when they were trapping, you know, and creating havoc was also effective, right? But in a completely different way, you know, some teams with, that have like sizes switch everything, right? So that you can be effective with a number of different ways you have to know, but you're not effective if you're not good at what you're trying to do, obviously. So it's knowing your own team and saying, okay, we have a athletic bigs. We're going to want to be able to put them in hedge situations where they can be disruptive and then get back to their own. We have athletic bigs. We're going to want to put them up to the level of the screen and still let them drop. Maybe we have like size and we're switchable. So I might, you know, look at our team and say, okay, 
I want three or four defensive packages in pick and roll, for example, that we are capable of. And now from October when we're practicing to when we have a game on November 10th, we're using all of those, right? So they are all in our bag, so to speak. Maybe option one is our best in my mind and option three is pretty good. I'm having a couple different options. A, I think it prepares our players to be pros. When you go to the league, you got to be able to do more than one thing. It teaches them terminology, right? It allows different things. Maybe we have smaller guards playing at some point. Maybe we have bigger guards or switchable, but it allows for different lineup flexibility as well. So we've got, let's say, four things that we feel like we're really good at in pick and roll. Now we get to where we have scouting reports and we ultimately might have knowledge of what type of shots we think beat you and what don't, but then you kind of match up. What does this team do well, which, what do we do well? And if we can do what we do well, better than them, like if this team particularly is not going to handle our pressure very well, because their guards that, you know, don't handle the pressure well, then, then, Hey, we're going to go with that. And, and maybe we'll give up a good look now and again, but three out of four times we're going to be disruptive. So when I talk about reverse engineering the game plan, it, it's overall looking at, what are our philosophical beliefs about what beats you? What is that opponent particularly good at? And then what do we have in our bag? And then what are we good at? And the perfect game plan is you kind of match it together. Specifically, one of the shots I think I've heard you talk about before is the difference between a corner three and a three above the break and the difference in percentage and whatnot. And so how does that play into your coverages and your perception of the defense? Some of the just increased knowledge from the NBA is, is you got more people and more technology to look at these kinds of things. And it was a little surprising to me that, you know, the percentage of corner threes was way higher than above the break threes. So, you know, it, it definitely can dictate And I'm still excited now to, as I'm in this new role with USC, like mess with it a little bit, right? And no question, as you formulate defenses of, you know, where you're helping off of, where you dictate that the ball goes right where you trap where you don't trap you know when you're willing to tag a roller when you're not who you know the, all those things like those subtle things kind of play into it again i'm kind of a data nerd but not at the expense of having my players just feel confident like they're playing basketball right so i want to teach them the why of stuff but they're not getting everything that's in my head necessarily so much of coaching is just the human touch and having them feel confident and this is what i know i'm doing and some of them really want to know why and others just want to know I got to do this really well. And I think that's like the fun part is to kind of blend the two. But yeah, I do think it's something that I'm going to bring with me from the NBA to be able to say, oh, wait a second, right? If we can do, you know, a really good job getting to the corners and maybe be more willing to, you know, on rotation, get there first. And if it causes a, you know, help the helper to the above the break and that shot's going to be a lower percentage, like at least have that in my head. Now, you know, play a team where, you know, where there's a kid who's, if personnel matters more, then location, we're going to be aware of that as well, right? Because in women's basketball, I think if there's a kid who shoots 50% from three, doesn't matter where she is, she's going to be better shooter than the kid who's in the corner who's a 30% shooter. You were hitting on it there, but I'm really curious to know more when you said about like affecting where the ball goes or kind of trying to, I'm assuming, guide it where the ball goes. So is this dictate your closeout, like you said, your rotations and even how you help to maybe funnel the ball to certain areas that are in your favor? For sure. I mean, I think the best defenses dictate rather than react, right? So the more that as a defender, you are telling the ball where to go versus, right, defense is at such a disadvantage if you're just like, you know, reacting to wherever the ball's going. So we want to be proactive with where we're sending the ball. That's, you know, that's on ball screens, right? Like, are you sending it to the screen or away from the screen, right? Are you plugging it? Are you icing it? And same with just in general, you know, where you're keeping the ball and penetrating, are you keeping it out of the middle of the floor? Are you, where are you trying to, you know, force it, are you forcing it to the help? Are you, uh, all those things, I think, just become kind of principles and pillars of your defense. But if you can get your players to be proactive and dictate on defense, you're probably in a good place. 
Something you said a second ago stuck with me about you're an analytics nerd, but you want your players to have fun and be free. What is your process of taking the analytics and then having them know it, you know, what's important, but then not overthinking it, like through drills or whatever conversations, how do you strike that balance? It's fun to kind of figure that out, right? I I mean, I believe that knowledge actually is one of the things that makes you more confident, right? Like reps and doing that builds your confidence, right? Especially with female athletes, talk all the time about, well, what is confidence? What does it look like? Like knowing you've put in the work and you can make that shot and you make that shot 80% of the time, and that's going to breed confidence. But I also think there's a mental part of it, which is knowing you have a game plan, using that game plan to empower our players. Like this is what we're trying to do. That's what I like to do. Now, the numbers may inform my game plan and I may use the numbers to say to them, hey, we're sending them here because this percentage of shot is lower than this percentage of shot. Or, hey, they can't beat us with this, right? But we can't let them get to this because this is how they win games, right? Like I think that that really paints a clear picture, but I think I'm pretty good at having all the extra stuff in my head, but trying to put it into a very palatable form, you know, for players. So it's not, give them credit. These are smart, smart. I mean, the NBA guys are brilliant. I think our players here, when they're taught kind of the terminology of it are going to be amazing with it. So they're smart. It's letting them have the concepts without being bogged down in the numbers. And then I think they take a lot of strength from that. But my point also is, you know, the, the Monty Williams clip got so much play as it should have from the finals where just that human touch of the ability of a head coach to go to the star player and be like, Hey, you know, you're feeling here, but raise it up to here. Like that never goes away. Right. Like that, the importance of that human connection never goes away, but I think giving players a game plan and being very clear with what they're trying to do is really good, even for the most talented, the most athletic. I mean, that's where you get elite, right? Like LeBron, maybe the most physically gifted, you know, human we've seen yeah. on a basketball court. But this guy is calling out coverages like he's watched more film than you and I have in our lifetime. And in particular, in an empty gym, you know, most fun moments of, you know, an awful pandemic is to sit in a gym with nobody in there, right? Or a hundred people in there and listen to the soundtrack of LeBron calling defensive coverages and stuff. And this is what I'll teach our players is that talent gets you some places and and the understanding of the game will get you some places. But when you put that together, that's when you get elite. That's a pretty cool thing. Coach on that thread, how do you teach concepts to players? Not only from like a statistical or what we want to take away, but just an overall making a smarter basketball player. Yeah. I think it comes in reps, breakdowns, understanding each player, right? Again, all players are different. Some may be able to regurgitate or reiterate, hey, we're guarding this this way because this is the type of shot we want to give up or such and such. And others may not. Like some people learn by watching films, some people learn by doing. I think you have to be flexible to understand players are different, but you cannot ask players to do things uh, on the court well that we haven't repped. Like I always say, if we're not doing it well on the court, like my first thought is always, okay, it's my fault. Like I haven't done a good enough job, right? If there's a lack of effort or a lack of concentration, that's different. But I first look, why aren't we being successful? Do we need to drill it more in real time? Do we need to get more breakdown, more whole? Like that's what I'm always kind of thinking, but you teach them through doing it. But for example, I'll spend a lot of time, like there's different phases of the year, right? So now we're in summer doing a lot of more individual work, but because I'm new, we're putting in some concepts. And as we're teaching pick and roll defense, we teach them that there are certain types of coverages are because we want to just play the ball screen two on two. We don't want to draw any help. And this is why you want to limit the ball handler, but get back to your own and you want to get back. And now we don't pull help, right? Versus 
if we're aggressive and we're hedging the ball, someone else might catch the roller and now we're in rotation. And I'll explain to them, we can do that if our two bigs are interchangeable, right? If we've got six three, six three, we can guard either. But if we're playing, you know, five eleven and six five, maybe we don't want to interchange that. Like teaching them the why, I think for some of them really, really is helpful. And others, they just need yeah. to do 27 reps and understand it. <laughs> Absolutely. That was me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One other kind of area I'd like to hear your thoughts on coach is post defense. And I'm pretty sure it's obviously going to be heavily player driven, but I guess my question is then what does that post player have to do? That's going to affect how you guard him or her. What puts fear in you that we need to double or we'll live with contested shots. That's a great question. Interesting, right? Like twos versus threes and easy twos, percentage twos. I mean, to me, like shots at the rim, that's going to beat you, right? Like if it's a high percentage twos. And this is where in some ways, I think women's college basketball is even different than the pros. There's more of an emphasis on post-play in women's basketball right now than there is in men's basketball. The back to the basket or, you know, around the block female is still alive and well, and it's very impactful. So I would say if we would double a low block presence, if they're going to score easily every time without doing so, right? If we just don't have a matchup or something, right? Uh We would also double a low post presence if we feel like, eh, we could probably guard this kid one-on-one sometimes, but she's really bad against the double and it's going to be disruptive. I mean, that's another, it can be a weapon, right? Like there are post players who just really are uncomfortable kicking out of the double team and it's completely disruptive, right? So there's a a number of ways to look at it in terms of that, or what are you willing to give up? Is there someone on the floor that you can double off of every time? It's not really a shooting threat. And then you can just strategically essentially value this idea that we're going to get the high percentage score out of our comfort zone and we're not giving up that much, right? I guess that would be sort of my thought process in terms of how to handle a dominant big on the block. And one quick tactical follow-up is how do you prefer to double? It really depends, right? In the NBA, we did a lot of base goes, like going from the baseline, just because you know the rotations were pretty clear. I've done a number of different things, right? We've doubled only on the dribble. If it's a kid that's only effective yeah. on the dribble every time, right? We've doubled, and then if they reverse pivot and face up, you're out of the double. We've done something that in the past I've called pink, which is you're off of one player on the other team that's just a weaker offensive player. And so you find from that player, sometimes we've doubled right on the catch, like the blind, that's more like the kid can't like the blind go get the ball and be disruptive. So any number of different ways, the double maybe on the catch or the double off the dribble when it's a bad decision maker, which one is there a preference? Is there an advantage to doing those doubles? If it's the one who's just going to kind of be panicky, as soon as they see the double coming, I'd go right on the catch. Right. If it's someone who is, you know, there, I've seen people who are very good passers. If they're, you're coming, you're definitely coming there. I know it. And I'm, you know, getting rid of it. And others that if once they go into their dribble move, they can't navigate getting rid of it, that kind of thing. Or like they're so committed. Once they put on the ground, they're going into the paint. They're going to their move. Then you can maybe just go on the dribble. Okay. Coach, we'd like to transition now into a game that we play here called start, sub, or sit. And what we'll do is we'll give you three different basketball topics, ask you to start one, sub one, sit one. Okay. So the first question has to do with you took over as a head coach of USC not too long ago, and there's all sorts of coaches that are taking over new programs for the first time this fall. And the importance of the first 30 to 60 days of you know meeting with people and building the culture of your program. And so these are three different groups of people that you feel you know are important to meet with and get on the same page. Hi, why do I see where this is going? And I, I've already seen that there's going to be some impossible 
calls in here, <laughs> but okay. Okay. We'll, we'll give it a try. So start, sub, or sit. So with your staff, with your coaching staff, with your players, or with important outsiders, the media sponsors, people that are alumni or whatnot outside your program, but are also important and around your program. So yeah. start, sub, sit, those three groups of people in your first 30 to 60 days. Yeah. So like in this question, you're trying to get me fired on in Like I'm like not even three months into the job. <laughs> Absolutely have to say the players first, right? Like the players have to start. There is no me, us. This is a player centered program. That's why I do this, right? The ability to impact a group of young women in every possible way on the court, off the court. So players are definitely going to be there. I've got incredible staff sitting right here, right? Outside this office. And if I don't say them, that would be problematic. But of course, like all the stakeholders that make USC what it is, that's really tough. So this is what I'm going to say. I'm going to twist your game on you for a second here. And I'm going to say that my staff is already so bought into the culture and what we're doing. They're going to let me sit them so that I can put the other stakeholders <laughs> as a stuff. They would tell me, no, you got to say the donors, the media, the recruits, the everything, right? Of course, they're so selfless. They would put, so that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put them next, but they know as a staff, like in all seriousness, right? Like I don't, don't do this alone. There's a group of us that are kind of together, united. I have an amazing staff, but to really understand college athletics, like you know that what you do for the team as this unit every single day is the most important thing, but you simultaneously have to be thinking about, Hey, this really matters to alums and the recruits are the lifeblood coming up next. And, you know, telling that story to the media is important too. So it's really hard. No. And, and all three of those are obviously very important. Yes. And you're not the first person to twist the game and, you know, yes. people have sat all three, started all three, <laughs> throw them out. So I, I like to go to one in particular that I know is really important. I know that the players and the staff are obviously the yep. lifeblood, but the importance of when you first take over a new job of meeting with, you know, people within the community, how important that is to get them on the same page as your program. For sure. And I have the great privilege and honor, to be honest, of taking over a program with not just a great history, but like a monumental history. I mean, we're talking right. about like, I, it's really mind blowing. If you haven't watched the documentary Women of Troy, you really should. I mean, it's a story of, gosh, it's now almost 40 years ago, right? That the 1980s championship teams, right? Like there should be a 30 for 30. Like those teams were historic and changed the game for women's basketball, right? So that's in the history of this program. So me understanding that connecting, you know, with those women and all the women that came after them. I think it's incredibly important in general, the Trojan network, people say it, I had heard it before, but I didn't really get it until you feel it. And so I, I definitely believe that I just represent the USC letters and the brand and the women's basketball program. But to me, one of the greatest things I can do is connect and really make it sort of our program before the entire community here in Southern California and the network around the world. Coach, my follow-up is in regards to your staff, and you're fortunate enough that you coach at an extremely high level, a competitive level, and there's going to be stress associated with that and pressure. And so how important is you when putting together a staff of people that you basically trust rather than maybe they're great mind, but you don't really know them, but you want to bring in someone that you trust that's going to have your back yep. when you're coming into a, a new club or a new college? Yeah. I think both are really important, right? You can't just hire your friends, right? Like that, I think that's really important. You can't just surround yourself with people that make you comfortable or you're, you know, you want to hang out with, you need to find 
high level people that serve roles and a purpose and add and are elite that are different than what I do. Right. And I think that's where you get a really good synergy. Right. But there is no question that people who are philosophically aligned in their character of this is about the team. This is about the university. This is about the young women that we coach. And my belief and part of the reason that I, that I came back into college and to do this is to really elevate other people, not just our players, but the staff I work for. So, you know, I have, for example, I'll, t- I'll tell you about Courtney Jaco. She's our director of player development. So she's a really good example of I've known her for a long time. I've recruited her out of high school. She came to SC. But we kind of remain just in good touch because I don't dislike someone if they went to a different school. And I think she didn't dislike me because I wasn't her coach. Like I respected the way that she played and uh, how she went about stuff. Then she went on to be an intern at Stanford and, you know, we connected at that level. Hey, how can I help you get in the profession? Then she reached out to me when I was with the Cavs asking about the NBA and some kind of job paths there. And I had no idea I was going to end up at USC, like none. Right. And so then when I got the job, you know, she was one of the first people I thought of because of her connection to USC because I respected the work that she was doing. And I believe that this could be a spot where I could kind of help her wherever her future is going to go. So she's our director of player development. And so she's kind of in charge of being the liaison to our players and everything that sort of touches them that's related to their experience here, but not necessarily only on the court, right? Connect them with our nutritionist, mental health, career services, Then on the court player development, I've modeled her a lot, like how we use in the NBA, where she's finding clips for people of WNBA players, NBA players, whoever. All of this to say, did I know her and have a comfort zone with her? Yes. But I was drawn to the fact that she cares about USC and cares about what we're trying to do here. So then I know she will have my back and sort of help move forward our vision. And at the same time, if I can help her be part of this and then become whatever she wants to be next, like that's how it works. You know, similarly, my assistants, you know, who have been doing this for a while, I rely on them to give me their experiences, to give me their thoughts, to tell me when, you know, they have an idea that's different than mine or a different perspective. Like that's high level people, but you absolutely have to start from a place of their high character people that you want to go into this really intense experience with. All right, coach, moving along. My start sub sit is it's a late game isolation from the top of the key. So start sub sit. Do you want to just go one, four flat, let the player play? send a ghost screen, send some confusion at the ball or random screens by the other four players as the one isolation begins. So I'm definitely starting like right now, this iteration of myself, my career right now, based on like where my mind is definitely starting the ghost screen. I think I'm not afraid to put the ball in the best player's hands or the best scorer's hands or whatever, and let them make a decision and make a play. But I feel like the one four flat right now might make it harder on them because it just feels a little stagnant. The ghost screen is really interesting because A, you can pick on a weaker defender, right? And if you feel like you have a weaker defender, you can actually set the screen, right? You get the switch and now you're you know, all the way down. If you have a threat from the other spot too, you know, they have to be very concerned about that person and not necessarily leave. But essentially, if you just cause a coverage, right? If you cause the person on the ball to switch their feet because they think they're going to have help, the screen's coming. Now you help your player get downhill. If they actually do go into a coverage, maybe you hit your teammate. And I think just the trust in that best player to make the best play, most of the time it's going to be a bucket. And the ghost screen, you help them you know, with that. But if they have the ability then to kind of navigate that confusion and, and potentially pass it as well, that's when you set them up to succeed. So I would say probably ghost screen first. Second, I would go straight one, four flat. I would say at the moment, like right now, I would say just random screens probably would be my last 
choice just because I would go straight one four flat, allowing the ball handler to read the help, right? If someone helps, they just know where they're throwing it. I will say one of my just kind of indelible moments, we were in an elite eight game against Georgia. And let me tell you, there is no pressure like an elite eight game. Like that is just, (laughs) I remember like just wanting so badly those players to experience going to the final four. Like there doesn't get more pressure than that. So we're in a really tight game with Georgia. Andy Landers was the coach. He was a straight man coach his whole career. They played us zone partly because I think we were 31 and three at the time. And we had lost in the PAC 12 tournament, the opponent had played straight zone. So I think he's kind of like, well, you know, they didn't handle that very well. Like, you know, let's play zone anyway. So they're in zone. It's an overtime game. Game is tied and he goes, man, right. It hardly played man the whole game. So at the time we called it our one, four flat was called butter zero, you know, our butter, like last second and just zero was everyone's in one, four flat. And I put the ball in the hands of Leisure Clarendon, who is in the WNBA now. Yeah. And they're just incredible leader. And Leisure was our leader at the time. We just put the ball in her hands and didn't send any screen. She ISO'd, got to her pull up, you know, which was essentially unguardable and scored it. So to me, when you have that type of player, you have that trust in, you, you can go one, four flat for sure. You just keep it Absolutely. simple. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And I was like, oh yeah, that's why they weren't going man the whole game. (laughs) (laughs) Coach, with the go screen, and you touched on a little bit and you said it, how are you teaching the ball handler to navigate that confusion and kind of make the proper read? I think it depends on, you know, it's a ghost screen and that's going to kind of happen. Essentially, you just, all these offensive players need is like a hair of an advantage, a a millisecond, right? So in that sense, if you know you're ghosting, it's just like get the defender to maybe call some type of coverage or whatever, but really you're just getting your defender on their heels for a second and you're going straight downhill. Really, that's what you're thinking. Maybe control Uh the timing, like let your teammate come up and then control versus a, hey, am I setting it? Am I slipping out? But if you have really good timing, it's almost like this in sync type of thing where the screeners come in and go sit down at the same time. It just gets you that downhill leverage a little bit. And are you leaving that up to the decision of the ghost screener, whether he or she sets it or ghosts, or are you telling every time, like, let's just ghost and get out? I think it depends, right? Like, I think you definitely have an action where it's like a straight up ghost other times, like, you know, we might say something like, Hey, let's see if we get the switch here. Right. You, you see a lot of times where they actually yeah. set it now, you know, this really happens in the NBA because it's all about matchups. Like you'll see the offensive person looking around, right. Who do I want to pick on? Like the, you know, your Chris Paul's of the world and stuff. will do this, whoever, like uh, just who can really, you know, manage a game and looking, okay. You know, calling up this person and they either you're going to switch and I'm going to get someone who can't guard me and I'm going to go by, or you're not going to switch. And then I have a screen and I'm going to beat you off the screen. So it puts you in a situation, you know, Bradley Beal will do that. So that's kind of one way. And then there's the unknowing, right. Of whether or not they're going to like them. You have like a shooting four. it's really tough because if they ghost it and their players caught in coverage, kind of staring at the ball, then it's just, again, we would do that with, you know, Kevin Love and Colin. Cause if you, you can't leave Kevin in that situation, right. No. Because he's going to make a three and Colin knows. And if you don't leave Kevin, then Colin with downhill speed can't be guarded really by himself either. That's where it can be super effective. If you have a shooting four in a downhill guard. Okay. This last start sub sit, this has to do with a player, one of your better players, getting their second foul in the first half, okay? Yep. And we're going to put this caveat that this is like a must-win game, an NCAA okay. tournament game. Yep. It's that Elite Eight game. Oof. Exactly. Yeah. You got to win it. So, My blood pressure just rose, and this is a fixed <laughs> scenario. So, And we'll say it's somewhere like you know early second quarter okay. or midway through the first half. So start, sub, sit, pull them out, and have them sit till the beginning of the next half. 
pull them out, but then put them back in maybe on an offensive possession sometime at the end of the first half or just let them play. So I will say that maybe like very early in my head coaching career, like the first couple of years, like, you know, you're a little more just kind of like, I have to have my rules or like, and I used to take them out and I completely evolved from that. So that would be my, the automatically sit them for the rest of the half is now my sit. Okay. In terms of the other two, like, I think my start is going to be let them play it out, but with a little bit of a caveat, I will say it depends on who it is. The one that I sat, if there's a player that you know, just has a really, really hard time not fouling. And I'm talking to you, Rashonda Gray, if you're watching this, uh, was <laughs> player of, of ours at, at Cal is now at the Liberty, amazing player, but you know, she could so physical, but just it doesn't necessarily have the ability to completely, you know, avoid a foul. Like if, if it's a situation like that and you just cannot risk the person getting the third foul, that would be the one time. But for the most part, and I'm just joking with you, Rashonda, but <laughs> for the most part, I kind of evolved to say, wait a second. So, you know, if there's eight minutes to go in the half, I'm sitting this person who's, you said, an important player, a player that, that can impact winning. I'm sitting them on the fear that I may have to sit them later. It doesn't make sense to me. I think that you're, you know, you're necessarily saying I'm going to lose the minutes on the chance that I might have to sit her some minutes later. And so I, I evolved from that. And so probably what I would do is either kind of make eye contact after the second foul and like, make sure the person knows, okay, like we're not fouling anymore. Like, you know, make sure the ref say to the ref, you know, she's not fouling anymore. Like, <laughs> or get them out quickly for a quick breather, right. And go back in. And I would probably judge the effectiveness. And if we're, you know, in a rhythm and go to about the two or three minute mark of the quarter of the half and then take her out and just feel like, you know, again, you got to know your team, right? How influential is this person? All that kind of stuff. My point is I don't want to go to the point of like the panicking where you, you bust your own rhythm. You sit someone for eight minutes. Now you ask them to come back in the second half and play. I, I think it's tough. So I just think kind of managing it in a more reasonable way where play without fouling, they give you another good, you know, three, four minutes, and then maybe you ride it home from there and that's less disruptive, but you got to know your team. I mean, if it's a person who's got, you know, someone off the bench who's equally effective and, you know, it's their time to step up, that can work too. Gosh, a lot of great stuff to dive into there. But the one thing that sticks out to me is just the emotional process of a player getting their second foul. And then when a coach always pulls them till the third quarter, I feel like you can lose the player yeah. mentally yep. because they know they're going to sit for like a half hour yeah. through halftime. It's too extreme. Like to me, it's just kind of too extreme. I've just evolved where I'm just like, eh, I, don't. I mean, has it, does, has it burned me a couple of times where the person gets their third foul? Sure. You know, but depending on when it happens, right, then they got to play, you know, starting this, the second half. The worst case scenario is there's eight minutes to go in the half. You're like, I'm rolling through it. And with seven minutes to go or six minutes to go, they get their third. And now you're still sitting them for an extended period of time. And they have three. Like, that's obviously sure. the worst yeah. case scenario. You know, if you get a cheap, like moving screen or something, that's when it's just like, what the heck, you know, but you hope that, you know, they know how to avoid it and officials kind of understand as well. But in general, I, exactly. I think if you're not as extreme and you just, you know, let them play, keep a rhythm, maybe sub them. Now you sub them with three or four minutes and, and you're doing fine and someone else on a roll. Great. Then you ride it through to the half, but it just doesn't make something bigger than what it is. Offensively, you just mentioned something that was interesting about you know the type of player, and uh, you don't want them to get a moving screen or whatnot. If a big gets a second foul, offensively, then are you thinking maybe less on-ball screens or ghosting stuff, so you don't even put them in a position to get that moving screen, or you just trust them and you play your style? I mean, I think you run the risk there if you're like again, if 
you're manipulating it too much, then are you also doing what getting them out of rhythm the way that sitting them down for eight sure. minutes would? What I tell players is you got to understand how not to put yourself in a position to foul. There's just ways that you're two steps ahead where you're not even, where you just really, and it takes an elite, an elite athlete with good body control and all that. What scares me that can be, you know, what I might not do is if we have like an isolation play off the dribble, I might not send a big into like a high post isolation where a guard can slide over and take a charge. Cause then I lose it. Okay. That's my fault. You send them into, I might not even run that if they get one quick foul. Right. Cause now you don't want to put them in a situation where, so, so you have to kind of understand circumstances, but I don't want to over micromanage so much because then you're defeating the purpose too. Like the idea is to get effective minutes out of someone who has two fouls and not let it impact everything. Coach, if your opponent, one of the better players of your opponent has two fouls, Will you look to attack them? A little bit. Whether it's in the post, one-on-one, put them in screens and see if you can draw that third? I mean, maybe. Without getting, again, you don't want to bust your own rhythm by trying. Yeah. You know, sometimes people will try to attack a mismatch in the post too much. It doesn't work. Or one of the things from the NBA that resonates, like the tactical ability of coaches to pick on mismatches and to really manage rotations and, and who's facing who, that type of stuff is really nuanced. And so, yes, I might, but only within the, the context of like, you know, you put that kid on an island and you know they can't foul, then you, you might get something, but you just have to know your own team and know the circumstances. Yeah. But that's definitely something I might, I might do. Right, well, coach, you're off the start, sub, sit, hot seat. That was a lot of fun. Thanks for, yeah. for playing the game with us. You were great. So before we close here, we want to thank you again for coming on and spending time with us yeah. today. This has been really fun for Pat and I. So thank you for your time. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And it's always good to talk some hoops. So appreciate what you guys are doing. Coach, to end here, you've gone in your last few years of coaching from being a head coach at the college level to you know an assistant coach at the NBA level, and now back again to being a head coach at the college level. The last couple of years, seeing the game again through the eyes of an assistant and now coming back to being a head coach, what are some things that you've learned that you're taking with you now to this new position? You know, I've just spent the last couple of weeks in gyms with other college coaches recruiting. And of course, you know, I a lot of people, since I've been gone for two years, asking, you know, what was the experience like or how does it feel? And what I've said to everyone is sort of the college recruiting scene is pretty much the same, but I feel different, right? Which is a really sort of neat place to be. And I wish for everybody to have the opportunity to essentially step away. And, and I loved what I was doing, like, but to have a different experience where it's in our profession and it's in the realm, but to be able to be outside my comfort zone a little bit, outside my comfort zone in terms of coaching and the pros, men assistant, like change up kind of the norm and just learn and take it all in and not have much of an agenda other than to help the organization I was working for and to personally get better. And then to be able to take all that for as long as you can do it and come back and be better. It's a very empowering type of thing. So there's a lot that I learned and it's not just going from being a head to an assistant because there's stuff that, you know, I learned from like, you know, we said the NBA, the pros, the coaching guys, but I would say from being an assistant, the number one thing is it allows you to have a perspective that is not driven by the pressure and having to make every decision. And I think it then necessarily makes you better because you can have a different angle on it and kind of see the big picture of what goes into stuff. I learned a ton from watching JB, you know, like I mentioned, managed situations. One thing is he has a real gift for having genuine relationships. And I would say people would say he's a player's coach or a people person, however you want to say it. And yet that not be mutually exclusive from holding people accountable or managing conflict or saying hard things. So I think that's one thing I've really learned that part of having those relationships is that you can get to something, you know, that could be disruptive to the team and really address it, which is, that's one thing I would say I was able to 
you know, kind of do a, a number of just sort of like one-off projects and be like, I just want to think about offensive efficiency, or I just want to think about pick and roll defense because I didn't have to make every decision every day, which was really good for me. And so I got to learn just the way that analytics can help you craft game plans and things like that. Another thing I would say is that I'm really going to bring back is this idea of, you know, helping our players now as young people, especially with NIL and everything, being able to understand, because this is what it is in the pros, right? There are individual professionals who have money to make, right? And that's important. And they have a brand outside and all that. And so to empower them that it's okay, it's, of course, you should want individual achievement. And of course, they should want to get great contracts, but to also integrate that with the team, the team, the team and winning and influencing winning and figure out what impacts winning and understanding that people can, it's okay to be like, okay, what am I doing in my off time to enhance my own, whatever portfolio brand and also be really committed to the team. And so I think that's something here that I've always sort of like believed in. It's okay to be an individual. It's okay to have interests that are different than someone else on your team. We should embrace that, especially now with NIL is, are there ways that we can help you, but also making the power of the front of the Jersey so important that people are naturally drawn to want to make that the most successful thing, right? And what impacts the team. And oh, by the way, if we're successful, everyone's going to kind of get kind of where they want to go to. So I think just being able to see all that from a side seat instead of the driver's seat was very healthy and you know productive for me. And like I said, I would have done it for several more years if this kind of dream opportunity hadn't come along when it did. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode with Coach Lindsay Gottlieb please make sure to visit slappingglass.com for more information on the membership, newsletter, videos, and more. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Oh, do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping backboard. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like that. That's good. Slapping glass.